to love us. He chooses to love you. He chooses to love me. It's mystifying, it's stupefying, it's beyond comprehension. But God is determined to love you. That is the great, great story of this book of Hosea. We had to go back with this video to the very beginning of the story in order to get the picture again. You read the prophets and you find the prophets of Israel preach with a broken heart. And very often they were communicating God's broken heart while they were preaching. They were the channels through which God was expressing himself. And Hosea does such an excellent job of it. Time and time again he returns through different pictures and different words and different perspectives. But he says again and again that God is choosing to love the people who have chosen to be unfaithful to him. It's a wonderful book. It's wonderful and it's heartbreaking. God's love is relentless. And his heart breaks over the condition of the souls of his people. We are all prone to wander. There is not one of us here who could not find himself or herself in the place of Gomer. I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm talking about our relationship with God. There isn't one of us who is not prone to wander, as the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your gates above. It is a powerful, powerful thing to be in the way of God's love because we are prone to wander. I have to remind myself and all of us as God's people that simply because you have professed Christ as your Savior and that you are convinced that you are born again, do not believe that you are not prone to wander. Don't think it can't happen to you. In each of these chapters, as we have looked at Israel and, and God's pleadings with them, we find that God keeps expressing his love. He keeps thinking, okay, let me try it this way. I'll say it to you this way. You'll understand it if I say it this way. And they don't get it. And so he comes back and he says, I'm going to say it to you this way. And I'm going to say it clearly this way and, and you'll get it. And they don't get it. And he says, well, I'll, I'll try it again. I'm going to say it to you again. And I'm going to use a different picture in a different way. There is no other power but God who can save us or who keeps us. There is no other Savior. Now here God gives us a vision as he speaks and pleads with the people of Israel. He gives a vision as to what fullness of life can be in him. I, I believe as Christians, especially here in prosperous America, we have a hard time with the concept. We thrill at being saved. We thrill at being born again. And some years down the road, we kind of come to God with the attitude of, okay, what have you done for me lately? 
and we're just like the people of Israel. So let, let's look at these last three chapters of the book of Hosea, starting with chapter 12. To find fullness in life, that seems to be the theme that Hosea is communicating in these last three chapters. The source of fullness in life. What does God say? How has it come about? Let's turn our hearts in prayer before we look in the Word. Father, teach us. These words are strong words. These words are hard words. It hurts us to see your heart broken and to hear your pleadings. And it hurts us again to think, Lord, that though you speak to Israel, that we also might be in that place. Teach us, Lord. Teach us how to hold on to you so tightly so that we know the fullness of life that is in Jesus. Open your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 12 actually begins at the end of chapter 11, verse 12. The sentence says that Ephraim, another affectionate word for Israel, has surrounded me, God is speaking, has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So God is differentiating here between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's saying now, for the time being, Judah is still faithful. But Israel, you have surrounded me with lies and deceit. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now, God is laying out warnings to Israel and then he's extending them to Judah as well. To find fullness in life, the first thing we need to do is listen to the warnings that God is giving us. Listen to the warnings. Listen closely. He says that Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. Basically, they are preoccupied with activity. They are preoccupied with empty activity and it's an evidence of spiritual danger. The people of Israel are busy people. They're even spiritually active. But it's empty spirituality. You see, we, we live in a time and a season when our nation thinks that spirituality is a good thing. And it is a good thing. But spirituality depends, the value of spirituality depends on what is the object of that spirituality. So, we live in such a time in America when there are lots of spiritual things happening. But they are not directing people necessarily to God. They are not directing people necessarily to the Savior. Israel was just like that. They were a nation preoccupied with activities that had no substance. They were occupied with lies and violence and foreign, alliance, foreign alliances. They were busy doing things. This matter of oil, oil uh, you make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Uh, they were looking for foreign covenants, foreign agreements, so that they could find um, 
rest and so that they could find peace, but it wasn't accomplishing that. And God says these activities are empty evidences of spiritual drift. I think back in the book of uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah, has strong words as well. And there's a picture that Jeremiah uses that I think would help. It helps me. God is speaking in in verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 2, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. Now here they are. Here are the two evils that the people of God have committed. They have forsaken me. Number one, the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken me is the first evil that they committed. And who did they forsake? The fountain of living waters, the source of hope, the source that doesn't end. A fountain of living waters is a fountain that keeps giving and giving and giving. That's what a fountain does. The second evil that the people of Israel have done is they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. First, they have forsaken the source of water, which seems kind of foolish. Second, secondly, they have made for themselves a place to hold water. They cut off the source, but they have a place to hold it. And they're pouring all kinds of water into it, but these are broken cisterns. In these days of green thinking, we know what cisterns are again. We forgot about those for a generation. A cistern is a big tank where you gather water. The city's pushing that we have these rain barrels. It's just a cistern. It comes, rainwater comes off the roof. You save it, you water your garden. It's a good idea. But Jeremiah says the people of God have abandoned the source of the water, but they've made cisterns to hold water, and when there is some little bit in there, the cisterns all have cracks in it. It all runs out again. It all leaks. What good is that? What good is a cistern that leaks? The people of Israel were doing the same thing, and Hosea was addressing that. You know, I want to turn this fan. I realize you need fanning here. You can thank me later. The people of Israel are so much like us. What are the people of America preoccupied with? What do we spend our time and energy on? What do we think about? We think about entertainment. I see more and more teaching about the God of entertainment and its rise in America. We think that fulfillment in this life is found in having a cable channel or cable channels, 200 channels, or I don't know how many are possible out there. We think that that is going to give you fulfillment. It'll fill the hole in my life. And so we think that that's important. The other thing I think we focus so much on is body image. What do I look like? The right shape, the right color, you know. Is everything just right? And we worry all about that. And we spend millions of dollars on these two things. Multiple millions of dollars on entertainment and body image. And you wonder, where does that lead? When you have a, a soul that is fed by air? I mean, just sound and drama coming at you all the time, so you can't remember one story from another. 
there's just always these stories that move you emotionally for a little while and then you forget about them because there's 10,000 more coming at you. No deep stories that move your soul. And, and then, how do I look while I'm watching this entertainment that I have a right to? You see, God said to Israel, you're pursuing air. You're just, whatever you're chasing is just wind, guys. It's just going to blow away and there's nothing deep to it at all. Nothing substantive. And what would God say to America in the 21st century? What are we pursuing? What do we give our energies to? We live to get home and rest. We live to do nothing. The great goal, retirement, so that I can do nothing someday. Why? Do you think that's why God put you on earth? And we're trying to hurry that up, so we try to do nothing now and before we get to retire so we can do nothing full time. Then God turns to uh, Judah and, and uh, to Israel and he says, now let me give you an example from your own history. And he talks about Jacob. Jacob is another name that uh, not only is for a person, a historical person in, in scripture, but also speaks of Israel as a whole, the nation of Israel as a whole. And he said, I will punish Jacob according to his ways. Uh, he will repay him according to his deeds. And he kind of goes off into a short recap of the life of, J of Jacob. You know, he was a twin. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Uh, Jacob reached his brother Esau and held on to him, even from before birth. And in his manhood, he strove with God. And that's, there's some substance to that. He strove with the angel and prepared, and he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by, help, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. Wait continually for your God, not for all these other gods that you might be chasing and might be pursuing. Jacob's life kind of typifies the nation of Israel and their national character. Jacob's name, you know, means supplanter, schemer, a conniver, a guy that always is looking for the angle so he can get ahead of the next guy, so he can put himself out in front. And in this case, it was his brother. And that was a, uh, a family. The family of Jacob was one that would be described as dysfunctional today. God met with Jacob as he was running away from his brother Esau's wrath. So yes, he did meet with God. Jacob and God met together, but it was when Jacob was scared to death because he had cheated his brother out of what his brother was entitled to, out of the birthright. And he was running because Jacob was angry, I mean, Esau was angry, and Esau had said, wait till I catch that Jacob. And so Jacob was hiding. He was running. And there at a place in Bethel, he had nothing. He had his staff, and at night he puffed up a rock to put his head on. And as he went to sleep, God spoke to him and showed him in a vision a picture of heaven. The entryway to heaven, he saw angels going up and down between earth and heaven. And God was speaking to this man who was a schemer and a conniver who was out to get his own happiness, his own way. And God showed him, I'm coming to you. 
you don't have to scheme, you don't have to connive, I'm coming to you. And then they refer to wrestling with God, which is in Genesis 32. Jacob was returning. After years away from his family, God finally said, go home. And so he was returning back to his parents' home, to his homeland. And on the way there, he heard that Esau was coming out to meet him. All these years later, Jacob was still terrified of Esau's wrath because of what he had done to cheat his brother. And so you know all the conniving and all the scheming, how he broke his big family up into smaller groups and he sent one ahead of the other so that if Esau attacked one group at least the other ones would be safe and he was afraid of his brother's violent reaction and on the night before Jacob met up with Esau he says he wrestled with God which is really the heart of what Jacob had been doing all of his life wrestling with God trying to say God this is the way we want it isn't it God this is the way we want it to be and finally, Jacob wrestled with God. He said he wrestled with God all night long. And in the morning, he refused to let go. And this time, he wasn't fighting God. He was clinging to him. He was holding him so tightly because he was afraid to let go of God by morning. And you know the story how the God touched him in the hip. And in the hip, he, he was crippled from that point on. He was lame for the rest of his life. He wrestled with God, and God said, It's enough. You can't overcome me. And Jacob submitted himself to God, probably for the first time. And so Hosea is reviewing the history of their forebearer. Jacob was made a new man when he was wounded by God. This is a picture for the people of Israel of what is yet to come for them. Then in the wounding of the people of Israel, because of their rebellion, they were going to find healing. They would actually find God. Notice this little phrase in here, that when God spoke to Jacob in verse 4, he met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Hosea is saying, don't just think that what happened to Jacob is for Jacob. What happened to Jacob is for us. And for us, I say to us, don't just think what happened to those men and women in Scripture happened to them. It's for us. If you're not taking lessons out of Scripture, if you're not applying the Word of God to your life, if you're not watching other people's lives and you're not seeing how they responded or rejected the Word of God and, and the... Uh, the approaches of God, if you're not looking at that and saying, that's me, then you're not reading the Bible, really. You're just kind of going through it. You're just reading literature, but you're not reading the Word of God. Every time you see a person in Scripture, you need to say, is that me? Is that what I'm doing now? Is that how I'm responding to the things of God? What are you supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to return, verse 6. By the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. You want fullness in life? Good. Return to God. Stop trying to fix it up, even with spiritual sounding things. Return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait for your God. 
Repentance requires a change in behavior. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And God says, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. He's saying, you think you're so prosperous that, that you can't go backwards? You think, Israel, that you've got it made now because you, you've got money in the bank? You think it can't go back to living in tents again? You are only blessed, Israel, because I have blessed you. You are only blessed because I have chosen to give you and make you prosperous. Don't think it's you. And the message is the same for you and I. Repentance requires a change in behavior. God has a principle that runs through Scripture, and it says, For the Lord loves, it's summed up in Hebrews 12, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. God is trying to say to you and I, and to the people of Israel, that you might go through a hard time here, but I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to bring you back to me, to total dependence upon me. Like Jacob, when all he had to his name was a staff. Would you do it again? Are you willing to go back to that place where you totally trusted God for everything, where you didn't have a house, you didn't have a car, you didn't have a family, you didn't have anything? Would you trust God completely again? We're often not willing to go back to those places. God uses prophets to paint pictures. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. God uses the prophets, used the prophets to teach and to paint a clear view of the things that were coming and the blessings that would be there. And God still uses teachers of the word. Now I have to say something to the people of good news. I'm in a very peculiar position. I've not known this position for almost 30 years. For almost 30 years, I've been looking down the road, and as far as I can see, the road goes on and on and on. Now I see the road ends in four weeks. What am I going to say to the people of good news in four weeks? What are the things that bring it all together, all 30 years, bring it all together? Well, one of the things I want to say to you is listen to the people that God brings to you. Listen to them. In many churches, the people of the church think it's their job to judge and critique the pastor. Mm, I don't like that style. I don't like the way he said that. I don't like this. What do you think about that? And I want to say to you, pay attention to the word that God wants to speak to you through that person. Whoever follows, whoever God sends to teach, pay attention. God does not form a congregation so that they can be critics, you know, like at the movies. It's not the job. The job is to listen and say, God, what do you have to say to me through that man? Why are you telling him to say that to me in my presence? You must be careful to consider that. 
that God will place a shepherd here and you should listen. You must listen. Well, they were reminded of their humble beginnings because they thought that following these false gods was going to be the way to prosperity, to heighten their prosperity. We're a very spiritually minded nation, but we are not very God minded. I mean, Bible God minded, the God of Scripture, Yahweh. So we need to be a nation that is God conscious in the very right way. Well, the first way to know fullness in life is to return or to listen to the warnings that God has given. I want to go to chapter 13 now because we cannot cover every bit of this, but chapter 13, the first three verses. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. God says, if you want fullness in life, clear away the fog. You need to see clearly what I have in front of you. You need to see clearly who I am. Israel had followed many, many other gods. And so in these first three verses, he's talking about the depths to which they have, had sunken. It says that they, verse 2, they, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. There's a connection there. They had gone to following the worship of Baal, which took many different forms and had many sub-forms and sub-gods. And they always made images and idols to represent this God. There's something in the human heart that wants to see that which he worships. And so they made these images, and there was something that seems to have come out of Egypt, and it just permeated the Middle East at that time, and they made gods that looked like calves. Now, of course, this started with Jeroboam when he split the kingdom away, and he was afraid that the people of Israel would be going down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And so rather than have them go all the way down to Jerusalem, he built another place of worship in, in Samaria, and he made golden calves, images, calf images. And they worshiped there. He said, these are your gods, Israel. And many of the people did just that. They worshiped there. They worshiped that. But what did it lead to, their, it lead to in their lives? It led them to become a people who killed their own children. You've heard me talk about this astounding thing. There's a god called Moloch with a huge metal image. Uh, and, and it was hollow inside and its arms were like this, in this form. And they would take their baby children, or even sometimes grown children, and they would build a fire inside this metal image and heat it up red hot. And they would place their children on that, in the arms of that burning image. That's the depths to which the people of Israel in their pursuit of stuff, of prosperity, had sunken. They thought, well, if it only costs us our children so that I get some comfort, it's not a big price to pay. And God is saying you're paying a huge price 
you've become not like my people. And I say to us as a nation as well, as Americans, we need to guard our souls. When we have embraced for our own convenience the killing of our own preborn children, we are no different from Israel in worshiping Baal. No different. And the warnings of God to Israel need to be the warnings that we listen to. And so if you need a reason to stay strongly pro-life in your perspective and in your activities and in the way that you live and the choices you make, watch Israel. And see what came to them. And see the great price because of their self-deception. We as a nation also experiment with other gods, religious gods. I just heard it the other day. Uh, there was a, a TV, TV show and uh, there's religious teaching coming across the airwaves even though they try to sanitize it. And this took place in Kashmir near Pakistan and uh, there was a wise old Hindu man and he is in one scene where every, everyone's sitting around and they're trying to decide what to do and he is the wise man. Everyone, because of his age, respects him and he says this statement that's very wise and he said that uh, there is only one God. I was with him up to there. But the next thing he said is that this God goes by many names and can be reached in many ways. And it came across the airways very clearly that you can approach God any way you want to. Whatever is convenient for you, you can call him anything you want to. The people of Israel had Moloch and they had uh, Baal and they had all kinds of other gods by different names. But it's only one God. It's only one God. Don't be distressed about it. And there are many ways to him. But what is God? say about that. The God of Scripture, what does he say about it? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and this is just a few verses here. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And by the way, this word Lord, as it is printed out in these passages, is all capital letters. Whenever you see that in your English Bible, the translators are giving you a clue. That's the word Yahweh. It's the word we actually don't know how to say it exactly in Hebrew because that was the personal name of God. And the people of Israel never said it out loud. But Lord, in all caps, is that word. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Deuteronomy chapter 4 again. Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Isaiah has so much to say about this. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, we find a summary of this for those who think, well, maybe there's another name. We can all call, talk about the same person by a different name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we read, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus, of course. Don't be deceived by well-intentioned generalities that sound so spiritual. It is an invitation to walk away and turn your back on the God who saves you. Abandonment of God leads to frustration with life because meaning is lost. Without God's protection, prosperity fails and falls away. Look down in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 13. God is speaking. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Sheol means the grave. Shall I redeem them from death? Or death where are your plagues? Or Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. For though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, and shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and the pregnant women ripped open. He's talking about the violence yet to come because of Assyria. I was reminded of something that Abraham Lincoln made as a, as a declaration one time. Before he declared, uh, made a proclamation about Thanksgiving Day, earlier that same year, in March of 1863, this we know now to be the midpoint of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln didn't know it at the time. But it was the midpoint of the Civil War. It would be another two years before that great conflict found peace. And he wrote a proclamation appointing a national fast day. These are the words he wrote. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. We know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which has preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient 
to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Ah, to hear words like that from the leadership of our country bring life to the soul. It's a great warning that applies to us all these years later. In the light of September 11th, the attacks upon this nation, in the light of Hurricane Katrina, in the light of a great economic recession, should we not think that God is trying to get our attention? Should we not think that the God of Israel and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who loved them and warned them about what was yet to come, do we not think he is warning us? Well, chapter 14. Thirdly, to find fullness in life, return to God with intentionality. And that's how he begins the chapter. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. And, and he's saying, here's how you do it. If you don't know how to return to me, Israel, here's how you do it. Take words. And here's the words. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. We will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Um, Assyria shall not save us. We shall not ride on horses. And we shall say no more. Our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. In other words, go to God and say, look, we are where we are because of what we have chosen. We recognize that. And we also understand that in you alone is hope. You alone are the one who can save. There is no other Savior. Take with you words. Go and talk to God. Repentance means owning your sin. And of course, national repentance comes about only through individual repentance. It is only as people turn to God in hope and for hope that repentance takes place as a nation. So it starts with one heart at a time, individual heart. And then he spends the rest of the chapter, chapter talking about how he's going to heal them, what he wants to do for the people of God. And he uses beautiful words to describe that. And he ends by saying, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. I don't know where you are today in your relationship with God. You're here on a Sunday worship, and that's a good thing. And I'm not accusing anyone of anything. But I'm asking each of us to examine our hearts and to say in our own self, where am I today? Have I been like Israel? Have I been following all kinds of things that promise me comfort and ease and kind of holding God back, saying, yeah, yeah, I'll get to you later? And I think there's probably not a one of us who in some way does not do that. We keep thinking, I'll get to you later, God. I'll get to you later. And I'm saying, now is the day. Now is the day to turn. Now is the day to return to him, just as God pleaded with Israel, return to me, return, return. It's an invitation from a loving God who, just as Hosea loved Gomer and pursued her relentlessly, even though she wounded him deeply, your God wants to pursue you and is pursuing you relentlessly and he will not let you go. He wants you to bring glory to Jesus Christ with your life. He wants your whole life, every season in which you are living, to bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's your purpose on earth. That's your great purpose. That's the great purpose of all of eternity. 
and you start now. And we start it in this day. Now we're going to have the band come and close, and as they do, close things up. I want us to, I want to give you an invitation again. Maybe God is talking to you about this, about your, the condition of your soul today. Maybe you just want to bring something to God. He is showing you something that you need to bring before Him. We don't want anyone to leave without being prayed for that needs to be prayed for or who desires it.